Hello listeners and welcome to what is now the fourth season of Pebble in the Pond podcast. We appreciate your support throughout the first three seasons uh, as we get our listenership up towards that 16,000 mark. Uh, thank you everybody, we appreciate it and um, yeah, and what a privilege it is to bring you uh, these stories from amazing people. We are here and we are aiming to create a ripple for change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I am the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year our association hosts several leading mental health conferences that allow us the chance to meet and connect with the most fascinating and and accomplished people in the mental health space. Listen in as we go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand. From lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics, leading community organisations and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain content, themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering for some listeners. If you feel you need any assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. Surf lifesavers and paid lifeguards are an under-researched yet vital part of first responder workforce. Having patrolled beaches to keep the public safe for over 113 years, surf lifesavers and lifeguards often risk their own lives, placing their duty of care to others above themselves. Continued exposure to traumatic or catastrophic rescue and first aid incidents during their time as members and first responders has the potential to negatively affect their mental health. Additionally, with volunteers commencing their patrolling career as young as the age of 13, Understanding their exposure levels to trauma and their mental health understanding and awareness is important. This week's podcast guest, Shane Dorr, is the General Manager, Coastal Safety at Surf Life Saving Australia, a long-standing volunteer member of the organisation with extensive experience in rescue helicopter operations. Shane manages and oversees coastal safety, life-saving research and emergency service functions, in addition to the operations of southern helicopters. Shane has more than 30 years experience with drowning research and development programs to care for members involved in emergency situations. He is a member of the International Lifesaving Federation Drowning Prevention Commission and was awarded an Emergency Services Medal in the Australian Honours. Stay tuned as Shane brings to the table a strategy to address the gaps in the under-reporting of surf lifesaving and lifeguard mental health and how this plan can better provide for members, create evidence-based research Uh, evidence-based training programs and resources and improve productivity, retention and attraction to the surf life-saving movement. Shane, thank you very much for joining us and sharing your story with our listeners. Appreciate your time. Ah, pleasure. Thanks for having me. Shane, tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into, well, surf life-saving, but I know there's a lot more to you than just surf life-saving. So tell us about your, your professional background and where it all started. Background's quite diverse. I mean, I, I'm pretty fortunate I grew up in surf lifesaving. Joined as a nipper when I was six years of age and grew through there. But from my professional development aspects from it, it's it's a combination of both volunteer and paid. I say that quite deliberately for surf lifesavers. We class them as unpaid professionals. And it's important there because it doesn't matter whether you're a volunteer or a paid member of the organisation, the expectation is the same from the community. They expect you to be there to save their lives in times of need. However, from my perspective, being involved in a couple of major rescues when I was young, and I got in a position where I thought I really didn't feel comfortable with what I was doing. 
I did a good job, but I felt I could have done more. So I went out there and made sure that I learned other skills, did a lot of training courses. And as a result of that, I ended up being invited to try out for the the rescue helicopter service. And I I did a lot of work through there. I trained other people in first aid and emergency management. And it sort of progressed from there. And then I got an opportunity to apply for a job with Surf Life Saving as a development officer quite a few years ago, back in 1991. And it sort of grown and flourished from there where I've now the general manager of Surf Life Saving Australia for Coastal Safety, and I'm also the general manager for the Westpac Lifesaver Rescue Helicopter Service, which is based out of New South Wales. And we've got one at Cape Banks at La Perouse and another one down Maria, which is about four to 500 kilometres down the coast on the south coast there. So my job is very diverse in, in respect that I cover everything from drowning prevention. So we do a lot of research around drownings. We know, for example, last year there was 241 coastal fatalities, 136 of those were drowning related. And it's, you know, quite tragic in that perspective. So we look at what we're doing around those areas, how we can reduce drowning, how we can reduce the loss of life. And also how do we look after our surf life-saving members and and lifeguards in that room who are there every day dealing with um, potential fatalities, major first aid and and other rescue incidents, which can be quite uh, harrowing. So it's very diverse in that respect. I look after all the other research elements. We look after rescue equipment. So when you see the helicopters or our inflatable rescue boats, DFIBs, we check all those sort of things. And we also do campaigns about how we get to the community, how we make them safer, how we change behaviour. But you've covered a lot. And just in that little intro there, there's a lot of feathers to your cap. Tell us what made you interested in this in the rescue helicopter aspect initially. But when was this? What year are we talking that you got involved with that? Yeah, so with the rescue helicopter service, it was around about 1988-89. I was doing some training with some other people and some rescue work at the time. We had the helicopter involved and a couple of the people there from the helicopter service actually said to me, hey, how about you come out and have a bit of a look and have a bit of a tryout? I then got invited to apply amongst a whole pile of other candidates, had to do a range of different fitness assessments and, and then I got uh, invited to be a recruit, did around about 12 months of training there, getting skills and sets up etc and it sort of grew from there and, and I was very fortunate in many ways, it's given me the opportunity to see a lot of different things, being involved in a lot of different situations. I then also did some contract work for as a civilian for the Department of Defence where we were doing uh, major rescue jobs and attended some you know, or, you know, I attended some plane crashes, etc. So mm. my passion and enthusiasm has certainly grown and evolved over that time and the experiences with it have helped me to hopefully become a, a better, I guess, surf lifesaver, also a professional within that environment to help others to uh, be able to deliver the job that they need to do. Has it always been ingrained in you, Shane, that you want to service, like your service to others above yourself? Has that always been something that is, is, is there, your parents did that or where did, it, where did it all come from? It's probably hard to say. I mean, I think everybody's different in that respect. I originally grew up, my father was in the fleet air arm and Navy base and, you know, so I grew up around aircraft for a little bit when I was younger, but they separated it uh, when I was young. So it was uh, probably just through the surf life-saving environment, the family that we've got there, you know, and I class it as a family surf life-saving you know, we've got people there for different reasons. At that time, really, it was about just being with my friends. It was about the sporting aspects. But then due to a number of different situations where I was exposed to people having to be rescued, having to perform CPR on people, etc., I just went, hey, you know, like I don't want to be in a position where I feel like I could have done more. And that's what I've done is just made sure that in any situation, I know that I've done the best that I can do, whether it's a positive outcome or a negative outcome, I know that there's nothing more that I can do. So that's where it grew, that my passion, you know, whilst I was very sporting, 
and achieved Australian, you know, Australian championship medals, it became more about the passion about, you know, how do I actually make sure that I can make a difference in, in an emergency situation. The Westpac Helicopter Service is, is an inspirational service. I know living in northern New South Wales and, and for spending a fair bit of time in rural New South Wales further west, seeing the Westpac Helicopter come in on a number of different occasions, whether it's at sporting games for people that have suffered a severe injury, whether it's a, an accident, whether it's someone missing in the ocean. I mean, it, it's it, to see the aircraft come in with the professionals on board as a bystander, it's something that is super inspiring to see to have that service available to the community i mean it must be so i don't know so rewarding being part of such a great service oh there's no doubt about it you know i've got so many great memories of being part of the westpac lifesaver rescue helicopter service you know we're very fortunate you know to have this service that's you know very unique around the world it's the westpac lifesaver rescue helicopters in australia are the longest agency of its type around the world as a civilian rescue agency is that right yeah there's uh, 16 westpac lifesaver rescue helicopters around the country and there's a diversity of what they different they do in different locations. Um, so you've got from the ambulance transportation through to the search and rescue activities like the two that um, we've got down in Sydney do, uh, Maria yeah. and Sydney base. You've got uh, South Australia, WA, Victoria, Tasmania with all different types of services. But the one thing that they all do is they all get out there, they all save lives mm. and no one actually has to pay for the privilege to be rescued. So it's quite unique in that. And we're very fortunate at Surf Life Saving Australia, you know, when we trace this back to 1973, so 48 years, coming up to 49 years, that, right? um, that we've been saving lives and, you know, getting out there and contributing back to the community. So it's a big appreciation to the work that Surf Life Saving has done, but also uh, Westpac, who's been the primary supporter since the beginning. Let's touch on the Surf Life Saving aspect of it. I mean, 113 years that Surf Life Saving has existed for. It started in Sydney. Is that correct? Yeah, correct. You know, you go back to the uh, you know late eighteen hundreds. People couldn't bathe. You know, no, during daylight hours, they weren't allowed to do that. weren't allowed to go in the in the water no, during no. daylight. I, I read yeah. that. Yeah, and it wasn't until you know the early nineteen hundreds a gentleman by the name of William Gosher decided to break that law and say, "Hey, this is ridiculous. You should be able to swim during daylight hours." Went down there, told the media what he was going to do, jumped in the water, promptly got arrested. But it did change the face of what we see the Australian lifestyle, where more people said uh, this is ridiculous we should be able to swim during daylight hours and that's where it began but as a result of that people also started getting into trouble and that's when brigades of young men at the time formed together to say hey we need to stop these people losing their lives so then as we go i mean the, the thing the surf life saving is about i mean there's a big part of the, the family that you spoke about early earlier we've got the nippers you've got bronze medallions you've got paid lifeguards rescue services as well Tell us about the, the evolution of that, but also the importance of looking after that community as well. But we have, there's been a big evolution of surf lifesaving over the years. When you have a look at it, you know, it was primarily the real line and belt, which would get out there and get people. So it's a, like a big cotton reel and, and a surf lifesaver used to have a swimmer go out there, rescue someone and pull them back in. Yes, yeah, so they'd tie that belt onto them. Correct, Around yeah. their shoulders and their waist. Correct, yeah. Swim so out there. Strap, yeah. And then people would wind them back on the beach. Correct, yeah. Put their hand up and, and pull them back in. So that was, you know, very early days. We then involved to the inflatable rescue boat in the late 1960s, early 1970s. And that's been a mainstay for surf lifesavers around the country ever since the inflatable rescue boat or the rubber ducky as we affectionately know it. That's gone on from there. We've got radio communications. We've now got DFibs. We've got GPS systems. We've got helicopters. We've got jet rescue boats, offshore rescue boats, so, and jet rescue skis. So, and drones. And drones. So the complexity and the diversity of the organisation 
has grown quite immensely and we need to do that because the changing environment we've got 52,000 kilometers of coastline we've got over 12,000 beaches we can't be everywhere so it's about you know we've got remote emergency beacons to alert people when someone gets into trouble so the diversity of what we're doing and the growth that we're doing we have to be innovative we have to be at the the front line because people too many people are drowning or getting into difficulty so it's about that progress of systems technology, et cetera, so that we can perform the role that's expected of us by the community. Go back to those statistics you said earlier. How many rescues or how many drownings happened last year? Yep. So on an average basis, if we look at over the last 10 years, we have around about 11,000 people who are rescued on an annual basis. Wow. We have around about 60,000 people who are treated for first aid, and that could be from a minor cut yep. right through to people Blue being bombs. hospitalised for long periods of time, spinal injuries, et cetera. And then we also have, you know, oh, there's approximately around about 1.6 million preventative actions. So that's an action that's taken which will stop it becoming a tragedy, being undertaken every year. And around about 1.4 million uh, volunteer patrol also completed. So there's a lot of actions that go on there. And if you work out, you know, the amount of rescues alone, you know, even if you just said 1% of those rescues ended up in a drowning death, you'd have a lot more people dying on our coastline. So last year, for example, 241 uh, fatalities, 136 of those were drowning related. Our average is around about 114 drowning deaths per year. So we know in the last 12 months or even the last couple of years, we've seen a spike in drowning deaths. They've been increasing around about 19 to 22% above what the average is. And that's alarming to us, but we also know that more coastline is opening up. And whilst we want to reduce drowning deaths, what we're finding is that as the population grows, we, you know, we're, we're experiencing more fatalities every year. Is it in some respects a lack of resources? Is it we need more people out there or is it the are these people drowning around off-duty hours? Correct. So what we're seeing is, for example, we know with the research that we've done in the last 12 months, 51% of the drowning deaths occurred more than five kilometres away from a life-saving or a lifeguarding service. Uh, so that's alarming by itself. And we know that COVID's had an impact on that. We've seen that over the last two years is that we've had more drowning deaths occur away from patrolled or lifeguarded areas. Right. So... The one thing that we're telling people is, hey, yeah, we know you're doing the right thing, trying to, you know, get isolated areas, staying away from others. But by doing that, you're also putting yourself at risk. We'd rather have you swimming between the red and yellow flags where surf lifesavers or lifeguards are patrolling so that we know that you are safe. So that's one of the factors. We know that alcohol and drugs are a contributing factor. 24% of fatalities are a result of what we class above the prescribed level of alcohol in their system. In some cases, a lot of the drowning deaths have over four times the legal limit. You know, so it's that sort of thing which impacts on people's ability to be safe in and around that environment. So it just, it's all these mm. different combinations. And a lot of it is complacency. And I don't mean that in a rude sense. I mean, it's people not having an awareness of the environment that they're walking into. And what we do know, for example, rip currents, we know account for 25% of all coastal drowning deaths that we know of. We know that number to be greater, but we can only class those that have been witnessed when the person gets caught in that rip current. So what we're seeing, though, is that when we have a look at the data, um, we've checked everybody. We've People said that they know rip currents are dangerous. We also have a lot of people saying that they know how to correctly identify a rip current. But when we analyse that and test that, what we found is that two out of three people who said they could identify a rip current correctly got it wrong. So mm-hmm. that only means that one in three people are getting it right. So it doesn't matter what you say. People, there's a misconception, there's a breakdown in the communication in that People say they know it's, they should be swimming it on the flags, but they don't do it because it doesn't apply to them because they know how to identify a rip current, they know how to be safe. But then we get a majority of those people saying they've also had to be rescued at some stage. And we know that a quarter of the population has been caught in a rip current at some stage. So 
it's all these sort of things that you know we're you know Australians we're an aquatic loving nation we yeah. love we love visiting but we're also getting into trouble the education awareness around that that's a big part of what the nippers program mm-hmm. is all about is there a greater opportunity we have in front of us to be able to help educate the greater public around rips and stuff i mean how do what's how do we do that I think we're doing a great job already. So if you have a look around the area, we've got, um, and if anybody wants to have a look at it, we've got a, a website called beachsafe.org.au. Mm-hmm. You get on there, it's got a whole pile of information about rip currents, about how to spot a rip, how to survive a rip, what to do if you're caught in a rip, and as well as a whole pile of other uh, safety information. So we've also got around the different states, they've got very good school programs where children not only do pool swimming, so learn how to float and stroke correction, but also about identifying da- uh, dangers at the beach, etc. What we're finding is it's when we're getting to those 15 to uh, 39-year-old males where the risk-taking behaviour becomes a bit more of an issue. It's the alcohol, it's the bravado, it's the peer pressure mm. where we're seeing those drowning numbers coming in. So it's more about trying to get people to understand that things can go wrong very quickly and limiting that. And we see that, you know, with you know, talking with police, they see that in road traffic incidents as well. So it's a matter of getting people, they, they know the information, but also being more aware of it. But also what we're trying to do is through smart technology, so using things like BeachSafe, where it'll map every beach in Australia, so the 12,000 beaches, it'll have details. If you went to beachsafe.org.au, looked up your favourite beach, it'll tell you whether it's patrolled, it'll tell you whether there's any uh, prevalent hazards on that day. So you can make a better and more informed decision before you go to that location. Mate, that makes sense, and, and congrats on doing a good job with that. As the, the statistic you also mentioned earlier there was 51% of drownings happened more than five kilometres away from a surf life-saving patrolled area. The impact of COVID on this, I guess, yeah, I mean, you don't really think about that, but you're right. I mean, if people are trying to isolate and do the right thing and they stretch out and, you know, spread up the beach, all of a sudden, there's, you're right, there's no help. Uh, yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah, and we, you know, we used to have a saying a few years ago, and it still applies. If we can't see you, we can't save you. Yeah. So we're really saying to people, think about where you're going. If you're unsure of the location, rethink it. We have what we call uh, the think line. So we're saying it's an imaginary line in the sand. Before you cross that line and go in the water, stop, look and plan. So stop, see if there's any rip currents or other dangers. Look around for other hazards or where the patrol area may be, because it may only be you know, four or five, 600 metres a kilometre up the beach mm. and plan, have a plan in place. What are you going to do if something goes wrong? Have you got a phone to call emergency services? Do you have a, uh, a board or something mm. that, can, um, that can assist someone? You know, we're, we're, what we're also finding is that a lot of people will go, well, okay, someone's in trouble, I'm going to go to their aid. And we've seen an increase, a significant increase in bystander. We call them bystander drowning deaths, where someone's going to bystander rescue, someone's going in trouble, a bystander's going to assist them and they become the the tragic story in the end. So, And what we're finding also is about 98% of those situations, that person going to rescue someone else hasn't taken a flotation aid with them. You know, they're doing a heroic, brave thing, but they've also just lost their life in the process. So we're really imploring people, think about where you're swimming, what you're doing, and how you can be safe. Know your limitations, because a lot of people overestimate their ability and put themselves in a position which we class that, you know, virtually every drowning is preventable. And that's not just through us providing our services, it's by people having that stop-look plan approach and understanding their own limitations and where they're swimming. What about shark attacks, mate? Are they in that, are they in there? They're not classified as drownings, obviously. No, so what we've got, so when we have a look at uh, the 136 drownings last year, 
the 241 fatalities that we had, one of those was a shark fatality. Okay. And as we know, there's been one recently on the New South Wales coast as well. So, yeah. you know, shark encounters do, I and mean, I don't want to trivialise it in any way because they are horrific and it's, you know, thoughts go to any family that's been impacted by that. But what we know is, you know, for roughly 114 coastal drowning deaths we have, we'll have 1.4 shark fatality deaths. Okay. So... You know, they do occur. We've got that. We've had a, also a young lad with the box jellyfish recently. Yeah. So these things do happen, but there's a greater chance of drowning yes. uh, than the shark. And as we said, you know, there's probably for every shark fatality, there's probably going to be around about 120 people who drown as well. So so really the, the opportunity there is to do a better job at education, awareness, looking at other opportunities with our workforce as well. And if we go to that just on this, because the people who the people who are there on the beach patrolling the, the beaches, some are paid, some are volunteers. I don't know the statistics behind that. You would know that better than I. But the exposure of traumatic and catastrophic events that, that they possibly will see during their service mm-hmm. can be quite serious and, and can have an impact upon people's mental health and well-being. Most definitely. So we've got roughly around about... Between 45, 50,000 uh, volunteer surf lifesavers who patrol the beach weekends, public holidays, and also a number of them do it during the week as well. But obviously, you know, being a volunteer surf lifesaver, you've got to get out there, earn the dollar, go to school, whatever you may be doing at this time of your life uh, to put the bread and butter on the table. In addition to that, we have around about 1,400, 1,500 paid lifeguards around Australia, and there are also councils who have their own paid lifeguard services. So there's, you know, between the volunteers and the paid, there's a big army out there which is doing things on a regular basis. The, the situations that they see vary greatly on any given day and, and you can't determine it. Sometimes you go with these conditions and you think, you know, we're going to get a lot of trouble today but it's quiet. And then on a, what you perceive to be a quiet day, you'll get all these other missions that come out of it. Now that varies from people getting a bee sting to like a, a blue bottle or a, a gimbal type sting so which can be relatively minor you know through to asthma dislocations broken limb people you know jumping off rocks um, getting into trouble right through to uh, full-on resuscitation people and shark fatalities etc so we have boating incidents where people have um, been um, hit by other craft and get major wounds and lacerations and, and require you know, urgent treatment in, in different respects. So it varies greatly and the diversity is just incredible. The, the amount of different jobs that we see and that our members are exposed to can be quite low level but also can be rather and you know we've got situations where we get multiple fatalities you know we've had one recently you know where we had seven people thrown into the water in one situation you know four of those had to be resuscitated at the same time whilst the search was going for others that were missing so the complexity of what we do with is ever-changing and you know whilst we do a lot of training and exercises around it you just can't predict what mother nature or what the incident may um, bring for you. The surf life-saving community is vulnerable to, to mental ill health challenges as they witness such events. Tell us, what's Surf Life Saving Australia? What do they have in place that is, I guess, more on the educational stuff on the upfront? So before it happens, are there, are there programs and courses that you have that are helping volunteers, paid lifeguards and stuff to prepare themselves for coming into that environment? Most definitely. So what we have... From the very early onset, so when you're doing your surf rescue certificate or your bronze medallion, commencing your operations, it's about your health and well-being. It's about you know you looking after yourself. That's got to be number one at all times. So we do a number of different programs about there when you're going through about you know what sort of situations you may be exposed to, how you should be looking after yourself, and and also checking in on your friends and 
and what you're going to be doing if you think something may be wrong. Around all our states, what we have is peer support and trauma counselling, critical incident debriefing. They go through a different range of different names as things evolve over time. But everybody in every state has got a very big support network to look after everybody. And from a national point, we've got some overarching principles about looking after our members. Our members are our number one asset. They've got to be cared for at all times. And then through our states, you know, we've got uh, doctors, we've got medical professionals, we've got clinical psychologists. But also what we've, the best asset that we've actually got is our members. You know, they are the peer support who are involved in situations and also going right through to our families. We've got to look after everybody in these situations because every situation is going to be different. And what may be traumatic for you may not be traumatic for me, depending on, you know, what we've been experienced to or how we respond to incidents. So what we've said is it doesn't matter. We've got to look after everybody and everyone, we know, appreciate everyone's going to respond differently, but we need to be really conscious that as I said beforehand, the number one asset is our people. So through that, through our peer support, trauma counselling, critical, critical incident uh, debriefs, etc., it's looking at that and it's about them. It's not about what could be done better or differently for next time because that's a different process. So we, we try to isolate reviewing the incident and how we can improve our response, which needs to be separate from looking after, are our members okay? What care do they need so that they can get back out there? So the opportunity is then the induction process when people are going through that bronze and mm-hmm. the introduction program, there's, this, there's the opportunity for that provision of services during their service if they need to, ongoing, upskilling them, but also around, around responses to incidents that can happen. And then also, I guess, after they've served, is there the possibility as well during you know, post-service that they could also... Uh, experience some mental ill health as well relating to what they've seen or experienced during their service oh definitely and we know through other emergency services that, you know for some you know they may not have any impacts or it could be you know a week later a month later a year later you know the time period changes for different people where they may have memories that come back so that support is there always to help people in those times of need what we also do as we, as we go through our systems as people get higher qualifications then we also train them to be able to spot things and also assist in different ways so when we have our advanced courses you know it's what what are you going to be exposed to you know right through to our helicopter crew we'll sit down and work with them on different issues we'll do exercises around that and we'll have follow-ups because they're 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 vital you know we see some pretty traumatic things so you know and we've got different situation where you could be responding to someone that you know could be a stranger but regardless you know any loss of life or even trauma incidents can have a big impact on some people who may not be exposed to it or understand it you know they've come down just because they want to help but some of the things that we see are quite horrific the recent senate report on first responders explored the mental health aspect of this and exists and a gap that you pointed for surf lifesavers with this tell us a little bit about that and where the opportunities lie moving forward about what we can do yeah the report was fantastic you know when we have a look at it we you know we found a lot of great information in there there was a lot of good work that went on there probably for us the missing part was it didn't involve you know surf life saving and uh, and i understand why in many respects but it's a it's a gap that we believe needs to be addressed and we need to be looking at and part of that solution as well and when we have a look at it you know as i said beforehand we've got uh, 45 to fifty thousand active surf life savers on the beach and you know another you know 1200 1500 lifeguards out there every day providing services they are first responders they are frontline they are the people who are going to get there drag people out of the water Mm. and whether that's through a drowning incident a boating aircraft accidents and shark fatalities and also people taking their own lives so 
you know, the exposure that we have there, we need to be looking after our people and the, and the opportunities that exist there. You know, it's demonstrated through this report, you know, that the impact it has to the broader community, this, this impact isn't just to these people. It goes back to those organisations, it goes back to families. So it can be quite devastating if it's not managed or and if the support's not there. So for us, there's a gap and we need to be addressing it. So you think there's still a bit of work to be done in this space? Do you feel like lifesaving needs to be recognised and included in these sort of things and be part of the solution as well? Oh, I think there's definitely opportunity there. When, I, when, when you have a look at groups, you know, like Surf Lifesaving and then you've got, you know, the RFS or CFS, SES, etc. You know, yeah. there's a lot of first, first responders there that come yeah. from different walks of life and, and from the volunteer world, the opportunity to ensure that they're all catered for because they all contribute to the community. If we have a look at the value that the community gets from surf lifesaving, you know, surf lifesavers pay for the privilege to put their lives at risk for others. Yeah. I think there's an onus that we should all be looking at also. How do we make sure that those people go home okay? Shane, if I can say, I guess, from my... So I'm a bronze member and, and I serve uh, down at the Lennox Head Surf Lifesaving Club, have done for two years, big fan of the of the whole Surf Life Saving Club, the induction programs. Uh, so I sort of knew that you guys are doing a very good job with this. We were also attending a rescue of a, of a young male who drowned before Christmas in Lennox and went swimming after hours, 6, 6.30 on the beach, uh, wasn't patrolled and, and got swept out first time to the beach. It's devastating, like you mentioned, for not only the community, but also the individuals who are part of it. But the follow-up from Surf Life Saving, the calls were received, uh, the support uh, from people asking subsequently after that uh, incident occurred, following up the team that was a part of that was really, really good. And there was a number of different calls and checking in and how you are, how's, how you're feeling, is there anything we can do, we want to provide you with help. That sort of support was really, really encouraging to see and, and to, be, to witness that, um, not only for what we're doing here with Frontline Mental Health, but to be part of an organisation where you saw that follow through and you didn't feel like you were left in the gaps, it wasn't dropped, it was uh, certainly followed through. So I thought it was exceptional being part of that. As I said, I've only been part of it for two years, but I think it's, from my point of view, I think it's working really well. No, well, that's great to hear. And I, and I think that's the important part. It doesn't matter, you know, when you say it's only two years, you could be involved for two weeks and be exposed to this situation. So it's important. Yeah. It doesn't matter what your duration involvement is. You know, some people, I know people who have been involved for over 20 years, never been exposed to any traumatic situation or a major incident. I yeah. know other people who on their first day yeah, or even right. in training have been there. So I think it's important that we're there for everybody and it's great to hear, you know, that the follow-up you guys had. And that's what we want for all our members around the organisation, around Australia, is that when something happens that they know that we care and we're going to be there to support them. Well, I think you're doing a great job. As we move forward, Shane, and wind it up, what's going on in the future? Firstly, a two-part question. What is, what's going on in the future as it relates to your role and what you're up to and any exciting things coming up? But then secondly, also for the mental health aspect, where would you like it to be taken moving forward to try and do a better job? Yeah, well, I guess first part for us is, you know, for the organisation, we're always looking at ourselves. We've, you know, we've got a a membership of over 180,000 and every one of them is invested in some way. You know, 60,000 of them are, are nippers and are there for the fun of it, but learning the skill of saving lives and looking after themselves. So we've got a couple of different uh, conferences and forums coming up where we'll be looking at drowning, for example, and, for, and coastal fatalities and saying, okay, what are we experiencing? Let's have a look around Australia. What are we experiencing? What are our opportunities for us to maybe make a bit more of a difference, have more of an impact. And that can be through community programs, looking at other unique rescue processes and systems and, and looking at behaviours because what we know is that the way to change a behaviour is get the people understand that risk, understand that hazard, 
There's, you, you know, like if you tell someone not to do something, they're going to do it. But if they understand why they shouldn't be doing it and can understand and rationalise for their own purpose, then there's a greater chance that they're going to be because they'll take that with them and own it. They know why they shouldn't be doing it or et cetera. So it's about understanding. Behavioural change for us is about creating understanding and empathy for that situation. So that's what we're doing at the moment. We've got a, a life-saving workshop coming up where I've got people from all all our states getting together and talking about the strategies for the next five years. What are going to be our key things that we need to be achieved, whether it's through rescue equipment, through training our surf lifesavers in, in our first, first responder situations, improving technology so that they can be better about doing things and doing the things that they love but more efficiently. So there are a couple of things that we're doing at the moment. And then also new, you know, I've just recently come back from Hobart where we're doing an aquatic rescue course, getting people to be more comfortable working around rocky environments, doing searches, et cetera, so they can do a better job in what they're doing on a day-to-day basis. So getting that skilled so that people feel more comfortable in doing their role and not daunted by that. And that's probably the key thing for us is providing that experience so that people can be more familiar and when things do happen, it's not a surprise to them and therefore potentially creating that trauma for them. So that's one part of it. The other thing that we want to do is we're doing more research around our mental health, around the safety and well-being of our members. And we hope with those papers we can then go back to the organisation and say, hey, here's a couple of things that we think need to be put in place, which will, you know, we're doing a great job, but here's things that could actually take it to the next step and be even better or that they can take home. And it could be just simply resources so that people know that they can get an online resource or in information that's going to help them to uh, reconcile what's going on. Mate, it's, uh, it sounds like there's a lot going on then. There's certainly a lot planned to be, to, to be happening um, coming up. How can people get in touch with you if uh, they want to know more or hear from you? Yeah, so they can contact us at Surf Life Saving Australia. So yep. if, you, if you get online, look up Surf Life Saving Australia, they can contact myself or one of our team or what they can do is if they're interested in surf life saving in their state, just look up your, your either, either your local surf life saving club or look up your state centre. You know, there's we've got surf life saving in every state around Australia, so you can either come nationally and we can help you out. The website is surfsls.com.au and where you can find all our contact details or go to your local state body and they'll certainly be able to help you out. Shane, it's been great to talk to you today and, and find out about what you've been up to. And it's, um, as I said, a big fan of you guys and the organisation and, and what you guys are up to. I think you're doing an incredible job. And I think prioritising the mental health and safety and well-being of the members and the community and recognising surf life saving is, you're right, I mean, the frontline workers who are, or volunteers who are out there doing their best to put their lives above and beyond other people's in a lot of circumstances and so they shouldn't be forgotten and so so congratulations on the work you've done to date and also the work that you're planning on doing in the future to try and look after the the community of surf life savers great thank you and thanks for your service no no worries at all is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast are there more questions you want the answers to let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au and be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.